Uh, it's Sunday morning. It is uh, December 6, 2009. Um, our message this morning is going to be called Swallowed Up. And uh, what a blessing. It'll probably be an abbreviated message. We had such a good time in worship that you probably already had church, huh? But are you the kind of people that stop with half a plate at a buffet? No, yeah. I, I've seen some of you, and some of you have been with me. You put a serious hurting on it because you want your money's worth. Well, what was paid for you to be able to feed from God's presence? You could never eat enough to get your money's worth. Jesus paid an enormous price for you. So let's go back to the buffet again. Turn to John 3. Swallowed up is the name of the message. Come on, one of you is there. Y'all can't be mad at me. This was a wonderful worship service, huh? You can't be tired. We just jumped around for an hour. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. We can read this, and because so much time has passed since the actual event occurred, when you hear that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council, that may not mean a lot. But if we were talking and uh, Lindsey Graham had come, some of you know who watch the news know who Lindsey Graham is, uh, if John McCain, some popular senator, had come to this little church to talk to one of you, that would be kind of an honor, wouldn't it? I mean, this Jewish ruling council was established based on a conversation that Moses had with his father-in-law. It occurs in Exodus 18, somewhere around the 25th verse. And God had spoken through Moses' father-in-law and got Moses' attention. He said, look, you need to appoint men. They're going to be leaders. They're going to be capable men. They're going to be men who are captains over fifties and hundreds. And they ended up culminating in one thing that they called today the Knesset, and then the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. It tended to be comprised of 70 or 72 members. This meant that all of Israel was represented in these men. So one of them coming to Jesus is a pretty important thing. When we hear the word Pharisee, we often think of it in an only negative sense. I think at some point in my life I've probably referred to lots of people who are worse off than Pharisees as Pharisees, meaning to insult them. Now I'm growing up and I'm trying to do that kind of thing less and less. But when you look at somebody whose walk is not all that good, maybe they're self-righteous, and you say, what a Pharisee, you might be insulting the Pharisees. Because the reality is this was a grassroots movement that encouraged the study of the Torah. They saw the study of the Torah as a higher goal, a higher honor in life than even going to the temple to make sacrifice. Because of this, they became very popular with everybody except the priesthood. The priesthood didn't like it because it seemed to diminish what the priesthood was doing. I'm saying this to let you know that this was a man of some importance, some level of holiness in his walk, and some level of dedication to God. And he came and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. It's amazing what people will tell you that they know. What they'll tell you that they believe. How many people do you meet in the United States that don't believe that there is a God? Not very many. How many don't believe 
that Jesus was at least a prophet? Not very many. Even the, our Muslim population here in Sugar Land believes Jesus was a prophet. But how many act on that belief in a way that shows with their actions that they agree with what was said? If I told you Gabe Mays was a prophet and Gabe Mays said, stand on your head here and you'll be saved, and nobody stood on their head, what is that saying about your belief in Gabe's prediction? They don't believe it, right? Jesus, we know that you are a prophet who has come from God. Well, doesn't that beg the question, why aren't you doing something about it? What time did he come to it? At night. How many church services have to have an altar call that's like this? Every eye closed. All of you. Bow your head. Put a coat over it. Hide right here. Don't look around. Is there anybody on that side of the room that would like to make a decision for Jesus? Where do you read about nighttime salvation? Jesus didn't die in a corner of the world. He didn't do it in the middle of the night. Our message today, Swallowed Up, has to do with what our life is supposed to be in Jesus. The man came at night. At least he came. <laughs> he came because he wanted to know more. Something had happened. He had begun to at least be interested in what Jesus was saying. He believed at least some of what Jesus was saying, but not enough to risk his reputation. Not enough to be publicly identified with Jesus, or else he wouldn't have come at night. What a bad guy, right? You don't know any closet believers. Religion is a personal matter. Hey, was so-and-so a believer? I think so. You know, I never really asked. Well, they'll get somebody to lie at their funeral, though, won't they? I get those phone calls pretty regularly as a pastor. He was interested in Jesus. He said, we know you've come from God. But he's not ready for his life to be identified with Jesus. He's not ready to be cast out of the Sanhedrin because he believes in Jesus. So let me ask you, on what level do you believe Jesus? Jesus, we know you've come from God. Really? How much? How much do you believe that? Do you believe it enough to be publicly identified with it? To lose your job for it? To be thrown out of your home for it? On what level do you believe it? Wouldn't you like to hear this message preached in soccer stadiums? Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This phrase has become for us synonymous with inexperience. Most of us in this room have a rich Protestant heritage. Uh, and among not all Protestant churches, but many, this term has begun to symbolize the moment in time in which you began to follow Jesus. I need you to understand something, though. This term is not replete throughout the Tanakh. It's not littered throughout the 39 books of the Older Testament. It's not a term that was commonly being thrown around in Jesus' day. Do you know why? Because the nation of Israel, much like the nation of the United States, already saw themselves as good with God. Their messianic expectation involved them being delivered from their enemies. It involved them being blessed. It involved them being champions for God. It did not involve them having national repentance, being broken on their faces and saying, we've blown it and we've missed it and we need somebody to teach us how to walk. It didn't involve that at all. 
involved, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, make me the chief, make me the richest, make me the best. But I'm sure that's just a problem they have. Right? Think about it, saints. Think about it. Jesus' response to him was, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. When you hear a message you don't like, when you're confronted with what we would call an ugly truth, something that is gut-wrenching, something that is harsh, something that hurts, what is your response to it? Well, men have not changed all of that much. Listen to his response. How can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. The rationalization begins. When you hear a word that is difficult, we begin going, what's that really what he meant? <laughs> Come on, you can, how literally can you take that? Have you ever been asked that? Do you take the Bible literally? Am I the only one that's been asked that? No. The rationalization starts, that can't be what he meant. I mean, after all, religion's really all pretty much the same thing. How many Southern Baptists are blowing themselves up? Is religion all pretty much the same thing? Did you think that in World War II when Japanese were uh, giving their lives uh, in kamikaze routines? Did you think that all religion was pretty much the same? Where did that lie come from? Do you think maybe it was an attempt to rationalize out all of the differences so that we just didn't have to be affected by an ugly truth? There is one way to be saved. All others, damn you. Everybody's fine with speaking kindly about Jesus. They're not fine with what that means. Jesus didn't say he was a way. He said he was the only way. Only way to the Father is through the torn body of Jesus. And you can't go through the torn body of Jesus without being torn yourself. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asks. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Books have been written about this. Denominations have taken their stand and people have fought wars over whether or not baptism is required. You don't need this verse to know that baptism is required. How do you know that baptism is required? Jesus said do it and obedience is required. We're all called to a faith that produces obedience. I personally think this verse has absolutely nothing to do with baptism. I hope that doesn't hurt your feelings. The question is how can somebody be born again? He says, you've got to be born of the water and the Spirit. If you didn't have sonograms, if you didn't have the medical equipment that we have now, what was the universal way to know that a baby was coming? Somebody's water breaks, you know. It's coming. Baby's coming. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Jesus is trying to get this man to look at a spiritual level, a spiritual conversion, a spiritual rebirth, and get his eyes off of natural things like how does a full-grown man enter a second time into his mother's body. Rationalization always ignores the point, doesn't it? See, if you feel like the Lord told you to do something and it's hard and it hurts and it's gut-wrenching, then thoughts begin to flood your mind like, well, if I did that, uh, uh, God couldn't really mean for me to do that. And I mean, uh, that's not what Darnell's doing. 
And it's not what he's doing. I mean, why would God want that of me? I mean, you know, he's not a respecter of persons. He wouldn't tell me to do something different than, than George. None of it has anything to do with the fact. Did he tell you or not? And it's all just to muddy the waters. It is all there so that in your reasoning you can reason God right out of the picture. It's meant to deafening, to deafen that piercing word that told you to do something that might cause you to die a little bit. I know all about it. Every time the Lord speaks to me something that is big, I am scared. <laughs> now, I don't always tell you that. I don't stand up here and say, by the way, I am terrified. But I am often terrified. And the thoughts fill my mind immediately. What if I am not able to complete what he's asked me to do? Come on now, somebody's rolling out there in a wheelchair and you have the thought, maybe God wants to heal him. What is the next thought? But what if he doesn't? Come on, am I the only one in this room that's ever felt that way? No. The central issue is, what is God speaking to you today and what are you going to do about it? I believe our worship service was probably enough preaching. But I don't want Matthew to put me out of a job. So we're going we're gonna to see if we can dwell in this a little bit. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, y'all must be born again. You there is plural. You see, he's not just addressing the man Nicodemus. Who does Nicodemus represent? He represents all of Israel and all of Israel's problem. And all of Israel's problem is the same as our nation's problem. We figure we're good with God already, right? We put it on our money. God bless America. We put it in our songs. We all say that everything's good. We're God's nation. The only difference is Israel had a reason to believe that. That's really the only difference. You guys, y'all, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. He's speaking to Nicodemus, but he's talking about the need of the entire nation. What a shock. You need to understand this. Imagine, we're all sitting talking, and I turn and I said, Cass, you need to completely change your ways. Well, at least it's just Cass, right? I mean, she's sitting there thinking, well, you know, there was that time I did this and that, and, you know, Debbie really does this better than I do, and Darnell does, huh? What if we clarified it and said, no, no, did you think I was just talking about you? How sweet. You guys all need to completely change your ways. That's what's going on here. That's what's happening here. Nicodemus was blown away at the thought that he needed to have his whole life start again. Now he's going to hear that the whole nation that he's responsible for and is a teacher for They've all missed it. No, no, Nicodemus, it's not just you. All of you guys need to be born again. What a scary thought. Could you be rattling through your mind going, what about Honey the circle jar? He, he does miracles. What about Hanina Bendoza? He prays for people and they get healed. What about Hillel? He teaches and it's amazing. What about Shama? These men are all holy. Could you be shocked at a statement like that? It's like saying nobody you know measures up, buddy. Nobody you know measures up. You know, you can be good with God on Monday and Tuesday. 
because you did what he told you to do on Monday and Tuesday. But what happens Wednesday when he says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor? I said, well, that one was optional. <laughs> I mean, after all, God doesn't really want us to do that, does he? Well, if he said it to you, he does. So what happens if you go your entire life long and you're never obedient to what he told you on Wednesday? Well, let's just not talk about that. Come on, saints. The nation of Israel, many had been obedient to the revelation they were given. But now there was more revelation being given and they must walk in obedience to it. Or guess what? The axe was at the root. See, this is what is wrong with this idea that limits salvation, a born-again experience, to one moment in time. Is a baby's life just that one moment in time? No, the point of this little baby who's whimpering back here is that it grows into a full-blown, fully functioning adult. It's not just about an experience. That's the start of a lifetime of experiences that completely revolutionize your whole way of life, your whole direction, so that the end result does not look like what you started with at all. That is Christianity. That is the followers of the way. Y'all must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. Keep your finger here. Turn to Ecclesiastes. You'll be in the 11th chapter. Fifth verse. As you do not know the path of the wind, or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the Maker of all things. Boy, you wouldn't want to play Bible trivia with Jesus, would you? It wasn't just something that He memorized. It was His very character. It was His personality. What have they been discussing? How do I get back in Mom's womb to be reformed again? And uh, Jesus said, you don't understand that any better than you understand the path of the wind. The man that He's speaking to had the book of Ecclesiastes memorized. Do you think he missed the reference? Probably not. Do you have a footnote out there that was pre-printed in your Bible? Not very many do. I wonder why we missed the reference. This guy, if you want to think of the kingdom of God as something that you could be in proximity to, like this one's five miles, this one's four miles, this one's three miles, this guy had spent his life right on the edge of the kingdom of God waiting for it to envelop him. He had 39 books of the Bible committed to memory. Does that sound like a bad fellow to you? Think twice before you call some self-righteous Christian a Pharisee. The truth is that would be a compliment. And yet Jesus looked at him and all of his religious grandeur said, you need to completely start again, man. And not just you. Everybody you have ever known, everybody that you've ever taught, everybody that you're responsible for now. Can you understand this response now? How can this be? I remember when I began to understand that the baptism in the Holy Ghost was a real thing. Matthew got baptized in the Holy Ghost and I listened to him pray. And I knew that the man was not just making this up. I could feel the presence of God. And the thing that disturbed me the most is I could see that Matthew glowed with a presence of God that I didn't see on the people in the church that I was at. That's just the truth. That's one man's perspective. When I looked around in a church of 900 people... I did not see anybody that I thought glowed with the presence of God like Matthew did. So I could decide in that moment what I needed to do. It was gut-wrenching. It was difficult. The very first thought was, how could this be? 
Could all 900 of those people in the pastor that I love so much be wrong? And all the seminaries that have such rich tradition and have gone back so long and have held up the Word as the inerrant Word of God, could they all be wrong? How can this be? Can you relate to that position there? The position Nicodemus is in? Is it really all that much different than a position that every believer faces? There's a young man in north of here right now that is going through all of these very same things. And I want to tell you something. It's easy for the poor to be rich in faith. You know why? They don't have anything to lose. But when you've accumulated status the way that Nicodemus has, when you've accumulated lots of religious learning, and it was not bad to accumulate it, you loved it. You find life in it. When you're faced with the prospect of your life's work being not enough, how do you react? I mean, because the thing that you get the most when you're sitting in a seat, the thing that gets the most resistance from a congregation towards a pastor is when we need serious change in a new direction. What's wrong with the old direction? This is the number one reason that pastors get fired from their churches. And it usually boils down to a divide between those who are over a certain age and are getting gray in hair and those who don't yet have that. And so things like gym services start. You know, kind of not such a legitimate service. I mean, it's not in the sanctuary. I was in a church where the pastor had a vote of confidence over an issue just like this. How does that work? And how could we be any better off? Here comes the point. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. Is there any way to take that that is complimentary? I don't think so. It's kind of like when somebody looks at you and says, Now Brandon, don't take this the wrong way, but... I mean, you have to brace for a statement like that, don't you? You are Israel's teacher. I want to tell you, Nicodemus may have been the best of all that Israel had to offer. That's probably not true, but it could be true. And it still would not be enough. Because all of his religious learning, all of his love for God, which I believe was sincere, and the proof of that is in his path that you see laid out in the book of John, all that he had done up to that point did not alleviate him from a gut-wrenching, piercing truth. Something more is required of you today. And it's going to be a whole new way of life. A brand new start. Now let me ask you something, Christians. How long have you walked with God? What if tomorrow the Lord spoke to you some new revelation that, I don't know, required you to sell everything that you have and go to Germany? How do you respond to something like that? Could you be tempted to rationalize it away? Could you be tempted to think, Oh, that's not really the Lord. I mean, how could my kids get through college? Could you be tempted to do exactly what Nicodemus is doing? Could you fail to understand the paths and way in which God is working out your particular plan of salvation? Of course you could. Where is our mercy for this man? In fact, you can see we have exactly the same problem today that he had then. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. That's a, that's a way of saying you have presumed to teach others as if you have it all correct. Are you sure that's true, Nicodemus? Are you sure you're standing on good footing? And it's not because Nicodemus didn't have a God-ordained position. Exodus 18.25 says he did. Jesus affirmed it in Matthew 23 and 24. They sit in Moses' seat. 
the moment that a man of God, the moment that a person of God anywhere is confronted with biblical truth, something that God requires of them, and they get in the valley of decision about it and aren't sure if they're going to do it, they're on shaky ground. It doesn't matter what they've done for God. You ever met somebody that had a sense of entitlement because of all they ever did for God? But I did this and I did that. What makes you think God owes you anything? Your job is to jump when He says jump. And somewhere along the lines, we've gotten confused. We've thought that this was really more about us being blessed and comfortable. It's not. You think that there's a different gospel for America than there is for the Sudan or for China? Why do we read books about Brother Yoon and admire him? It's wonderful that we admire him, but it really should be your testimony too. It should be my testimony too. So, but I've never faced prison. I know, but you face a lot of things that Jesus tells you to do. Do you do it even when it hurts or only when it's nice? Do you keep your vow to him even when it hurts? Or was this kind of a temporary thing? Jesus said, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you now of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That's quite a statement. He's claiming an authority that no other human being would ever have been able to claim. He says, I am the only one who has ever gone into the heavens. And now I'm here telling you of what I've seen, telling you of what I've heard, and you don't believe me. Why do you think Nicodemus didn't believe him? Because he didn't like the message. Same reason you don't believe it when you hear something you don't like. It has nothing to do with whether it's true. It has to do with whether it's palatable. But let me ask you, do you only want truth that is palatable? Or do you want the kind of truth that will change your whole life? Wow. You know, things that are spoken by the Spirit are often misunderstood by those without it. I understand that. 1 Corinthians teaches us that. 1 Corinthians 2 actually says the man without the Spirit doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him, for they're spiritually discerned. But what happens when God's Spirit-filled church ignores His Word? You think it'll be enough for us to say, well, nobody else was doing it either? So it's one of the things that I am most proud about this little group of believers is I believe that you rise to the call. There have been times when our church has been negligent in some areas, uh, which is a nice way to say there have been times that you personally have been negligent in some areas. But every time it's brought up, our church is resilient. You respond. You correct what was wrong. You do whatever it takes to get right. That's not always true. I mean, people leave because they don't like that message, but you're here because you do like that message. You want to get it right. There's no limit to what Jesus can do. There is no limit to what He can do. I want to teach you about the gut-wrenching reality of the cross here. We're going to close in the next few minutes, so y'all don't worry about the clock. Okay? There's something that you can learn here 
that will cause you to look at God's Word to you differently, always. He said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Turn with me to Numbers 21. to a prostitute, when you go talk to a tax collector, when you go talk to a Gentile in the first century, they didn't suffer from something. They didn't think, you know, I'm pretty good already. I've got it all together already. I'm good with God. They didn't think that way. Because there was a religious standard, a righteous standard that they saw being displayed before them through the death of innocence uh, in the temple, through a holy priesthood through the standard of God's Word. And even the Gentiles saw it. And they knew one thing. They knew that their lifestyle was outside of that. The real trick came for people that had become comfortable with their lifestyle in the religious system. Because they had learned to compromise what God said to them while dwelling within the system. This is how Nicodemus can stand there and not understand what Jesus is saying. Listen to what Jesus actually told him. Nicodemus, something's coming where the Son of Man's going to be lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up the snake. Do you think that Nicodemus caught the reference? Do you think he understood it? Numbers 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. We detest this miserable food that being being fed for 40 years on bread that fell from heaven. And what had once been a blessing was now so commonplace that they could call it miserable food. Now, on a lateral level, you can understand this. Ellen, what's your favorite food? Good food. Good food. All right. Gabe, what's your favorite food? A medium rare steak from Perry's Steak. Uh, Perry's Steak. This would be hard to imagine, but if Gabe was able to eat at Perry's three times a day, right? Three times a day, for seven days, he may think that's wonderful. But when those seven days turn into 21 days, and then 30 days, then 365 days, then several thousand days, at some point, what was a blessing is going to be the very thing that God gave him to test him, to bless him, has now become a test for him. What has become familiar to him has become the problem. Is there anybody in here that literally thinks that for the next five years you could eat the same food? Every day, three times a day, with a great big smile on your face? No. And yet, in your very soul, when you hear the words miserable food, you're grieved, aren't you? I mean, it hurts just to read that. How could they say that? Well, as long as it's them 
a people a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's how could they do that? How many good things has God given us that we have already taken for granted? How many times has His way simply seemed to take too long? So you're mad at your church. Certainly not your pastor. You're mad at everything else in life. And it's all begun to look rather miserable. Nicodemus was a part of a religious system that had done what God told them to do. And they did it so long that they didn't recognize the areas that they were too strict in. They didn't recognize the areas they completely missed the heart of God in. They just simply were trudging along. Right? So now the one who has come from God is standing before him and he does not understand a word that is coming out of his mouth. So he puts it in nursery school language for him. It seems complicated to us. It was not to Nicodemus. He says, you know, there's going to be something that happens here that is just like when Moses lifted up the snake. He's painting a picture for Nicodemus of Israel's present situation. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? Once out of Egypt, always out of Egypt? Oh, it doesn't work, does it? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. It's a whole teaching here on fiery serpents that we don't have time for. The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moshe and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Why did they have to be bitten by snakes before they realized they sinned? Did the sin occur before or after the snakes bit? Before. So why is it only after they were bitten by consequence that they noticed it? It's an amazing thing. When we don't allow ourselves to feel consequence, when we insulate ourselves from every bit of God's discipline in our lives through affluence, we don't even realize we're being ravaged by snakes. It's only when one strikes the death blow that people get really serious, huh? Amazing thing. I have relatives all over Texas that I never hear from unless somebody's died or is about to die. Or occasionally when they can't find somebody who will marry them. Right? I hear them too. Why is that? What is it about their lives that suddenly they became aware they needed prayer when somebody was dying, but the day before they got that report, they didn't notice. They were just fine. Everything's okay. It seems that there's an ability to really self-deceive. There is a chance, not in the world, but in the church, that by being around the Word, by being around believers, by generally feeling like a happy person, that everything is just hunky-dory with God. What if it is not the case? You know how you know when you're right with God? When your very food is to do His will. How many times do you not even think about what His will is in a situation before you act on it? Saints, we must grow up in our salvation. We must rid ourselves of that idea. We can't consider what God's will after the situation. I'm privy to more things than most of you are, and I get that. 
but you don't know how many times somebody says, hey, what do you think about this? And I go, oh, I don't know. And before I've even seen the person again, it's already upon us. Because they couldn't wait. Could not wait to hear from God. I don't know how many times that happened. Until by the time I did it. <laughs> Driving down the road. I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to have that vehicle. In fact, if it's there when I come back from lunch, I'll know it's there. <laughs> I can't tell you what a beating that was. When we see things we want, when we hear things we don't want, we're not very good at self-assessing where we are with that. And Jesus' words suddenly become foggy to us, unclear. We're rationalizing them away. Snakes are at your feet and you don't know it. The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. Wouldn't it have been better that they prayed before the snakes came that their attitudes change? Wouldn't it have been better that they prayed God give them a new palate for the uh, manna? Wouldn't it have been better that they prayed, Lord, help us show patience in this situation? What is it about us that only cares about consequence? There are some consequences that you don't even find until the day of judgment. Some men's sins trail behind them, while others go ahead reaching the place of judgment. You may not even feel consequence now. Is that mercy or is that increased judgment? What a great question. So Moses prayed for the people. For instance, by the way, if every time you did something that was displeasing to the Lord, a finger fell off, how many times do you think you would uh, do something displeasing to the Lord? Sometimes immediate consequence is the biggest blessing in a person's life. The Lord said to Moshe, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Now to the Israelites, what is this snake now a symbol of? Death, sin. We heard those, right? We're missing a word in there, though. See, we don't have any problem saying death, sin. No, no. It's a very personal symbol of their sin. See, you're not caring about the snake on the pole and looking at it unless you've been bitten by a snake. This was a way for every man to have to come face to face with his personal shortcomings with God. See, we don't have a problem saying, oh yeah, the whole world's going astray. Man, if they don't turn around. What about you? Where are you with him right now? So, well, I'm saved. Hey, look, I didn't ask if you had a merit badge. What I'm asking is, where are you with him right now? Are you in his will or out of his will? The things you're contemplating, are they in his will or out of his will? The things you did yesterday, in his will or out of his will? Jesus is a master at doing something. He brought Nicodemus to a place immediately. said, you must be born again. Before he addressed y'all, it was you must be born again. Face to face with his own sin. What makes Jesus such a good reflection of sin? He doesn't have any. And so when you stare at him, you see the things that are wrong with you. Yeah, that's crazy. If you're ever blessed to have a friend that was more righteous than you, it's a gut-wrenching experience. You know, you can look over and go, golly, why did I do that and he didn't? That person then goes and falls on their face before Jesus and cries out, dear God, save me, a sinner. And you thought you were all right with God because you were self-deceived. 
It might leave a mark on you. It did me. The bronze snake in Jesus being lifted up was a way for every person to get eye level with their own sin. Why lift it up? Why not leave it on the ground? Because you're not above it. The Lord spoke to Moses. Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. What does this tell you about the nature of God? Is He looking for a chance just to burn you? Has He been waiting, watching Stephanie all week? Where can I prove her wrong? Has He been following Patricia around with a stick? Is that what He does? Is He Zeus? Is He, is he the Greek God who sits on the throne and throws lightning bolts at Mario? Because that little dude, I've been waiting for him. Boy, i got him now. No, you know what He wants? He sees clearly. He wants you to look into his character that is being lifted up before you and go, Lord, where am I wrong? Where am I wrong? When compared with you, what about me needs to change, be totally revolutionized? That is salvation. That's what salvation is. Salvation is not just acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. The demons do that. It's not just saying a magic phrase or eating a cracker. It's not. Salvation is a daily experience where you say, Lord, you will be lifted up. You will be lifted up. I will stare into your character, find my shortcomings, and I will constantly change. Not back in the past. Not a one-time thing. Not a warm, fuzzy experience in front of the altar. I will constantly change into your presence. I will do anything that you say to do. Anything. He will put that to the test, saints. This is why the love of most grows cold. Did you hear that? The love of most grows cold. If we're talking about the nation, that's easy. The love of most grows cold. Of course. What if you limit it to the people in this room and say the love of most grows cold? That's a fearful thing, isn't it? Say, not us, Lord. We're the remnant. Prove it. Prove it. I'm making it my mission to prove it. Don't think I feel like I stand up here secure. <laughs> I'm secure in this. If I do what He tells me to do, He will deliver me to the uttermost. I'm equally secure in the fact that if I do not do what He tells me to do, if I allow myself to be seduced by the world, He will burn me. Say, but, but you, you did, did, but, but, there are no buts. That's all rationalization. Salvation is not earned. It's credited. These people didn't do anything that cured their snake bite. God cured it. That was grace. That was credit. But it was required that they be obedient. They look right at their sin and acknowledge that it's theirs and ask for help. Many of you found that during worship. What a relieving feeling. If you just got bit by a snake, there's no better feeling than to shake it off in the fire, is there? To go on about your business. Maybe that's why Paul was able to shake his snake off. He had been doing that every day. He had been looking into the character of Christ, measuring his life against it, and straining for what was ahead of him, and forgetting what was behind. I want your lives to become swallowed up in Jesus. Three times in the book of John alone, he said, when the Son of Man is lifted up. He said it in 8.28, and he said it in 12.32. But these are not the only snakes in the Bible. <laughs> The whole walk of Nicodemus was founded upon a revelation of Moses. And when Moses stood before God 
And he said, look, I don't want to go. Would you send someone else? He did not want to be obedient to what God said. What did God tell him to do? Moses, what's that in your hand? It's a staff. This is the righteous standard upon which a man leans. It guides his path, his walk, all of those things. Cast it down, Moses. Moses cast it down. What did it become? A snake. What did Moses do when he saw the snake? He ran from it. We have a tendency to run from anything that shows we have sin. We're comfortable standing next to the righteous standard. But if it shows we have sin, we run from it. What did God require him to do? Grab it by its tail and pick it up. You embrace it. Your sin can be made a righteous standard again. All it requires is for you to confront it with God. There's one way for salvation, saints. You've got to get eye level with the ugliness that is in your life and let Jesus heal it. You know what? Nothing happens. The guy who's snake bitten is, no, no, it didn't bite me. It's a lizard. Not a snake. Lizard. <laughs> he dies. He dies. He may not feel the consequence of his lie, his self deception, until the moment in which he dies. But then it's too late, isn't it? Is that the only place that the snake is mentioned? Snake and staff. No. See, Moses stood before Pharaoh. Actually, that's a complicated scenario, but Pharaoh had his own prophet. Pharaoh was considered to be God incarnate, and then Pharaoh's wise men, Janes and Jamborees, were his prophets. So God said, okay, Moses, you'll be like God. Aaron, you'll be like his prophet. Y'all go stand your match for him, Moses. You measure up always when you're sent by God. Doesn't matter how stacked the deck is, you measure up. And you remember what happens there? Aaron takes his staff, throws it down. It's Exodus 7. And what happens? It turns into a snake. It's like God is giving a pictorial display of what salvation is. So was Pharaoh and everyone impressed? No. Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 says James and Jamborees opposed this. What did they do? They were able to reproduce the same thing by their magic arts. There is all around us other ways to be saved. Some are incredibly subtle. Like, there's enough Jesus in it just to make you think, oh, it's the same. And then you find out his name's Jesus, but his character's different. There's one of those right down the road, this Mormon church down here. That is the devil incarnate. Mm-hmm. There are some less subtle ones also. They teach a form of godliness and they deny its power. The power of God, the salvation of God, the moving of God is dependent upon the obedience of the people. By the way, when James and Jamborees did their thing, what did Moses' snake do? It swallowed up theirs. God's method of salvation saves to the uttermost. It will destroy everything that stands against it. In the end, the obedient will be blessed. Friends, don't settle for a mirage. Don't settle for a bless me club. Don't settle for the kind of walk that just says, Oh yeah, I'm good, you're good, it's all great. If that's all you're ever hearing, if that's all you're ever feeling, you're probably already self-deceived. 
What our God wants is for you to measure yourself against Him. He was trying to get Nicodemus to realize something. What was Nicodemus supposed to realize? You're snake-bitten and don't know it. If you look at me, I will provide life for you. Now, if you read John 7, Nicodemus goes through a progression. He hears everybody slandering Jesus, but now he's encountered Jesus. He begins to defend Jesus. Do you defend people you don't like? Not usually. It can happen. But most of the time, if you defend somebody, it's because you have some admiration for them. By the time we get to John 19, the man who was simply interested in Jesus, who later defended Jesus, is now identifying with Jesus. The last time Nicodemus appears in the Bible, he has made a place for Jesus, cut out of a rocky tomb that symbolized his heart. And he is rubbing spices upon Jesus' body and placing him in a tomb. Saints, God is merciful. It's not about a single instance unless you make it about that single instance. But you know what was required of Nicodemus in John 19? The same thing that was required of him in John 3. God just had mercy on him for a few years until he got there. I don't know where you're at, but I tell you, Mercy has already been shown you or you wouldn't still be here. The question is, are you going to try to wear that out? Or are you going to get it right now? Who's in the get it right now category? Y'all asleep? Who's in the get it right now category? I was worried there that I wasn't speaking English for a moment. I thought I was speaking in other tongues or something. You were praying for interpretation. Jesus came in here during our worship service. He wrapped his arms around us. You felt his love and his warmth, right? The way that you maintain that is by doing whatever he says to do, no matter how silly. And let a little test go through your mind, right? Was that Jesus? I don't know. Could the devil get glory from this in some way? Right? If it's something that depreciates flesh and lifts up Jesus, probably it's not the devil telling you to do it. And probably the rationalization that has started is just your flesh trying to squirm out of it. I know all about that. When you feel like the Lord's told you to do something, make the public proclamation. Let people know. They'll help you. They'll hold you accountable to do things like run marathons. Right? And then every moment that you think, I don't know if I can do it, go get around the believers who have made similar commitments. And they will help you along your way. You will spur one another on. But your obedience to God that has been kept a secret, that has been only spoken in the dark recesses of your heart, is easily put away in the same way. The moment that I fell in love with Jesus, I went and told every person I knew. It took me a couple years to find them all. And some of them, it was a horribly humbling experience. And God bless me for it. And so from the beginning, I began to feel His presence in a way that I got used to. Saints, you want to be used to dwelling in His presence. Church should not be the rare exception. You shouldn't get into His presence twice a week. You should get into His presence all day, every day. It's late. I've worn you out with my preaching. (laughs) My hope, honestly, saints is that you'll get a taste for this and you'll want to outdo each other and you'll want to strive to see who can love the most, who can be the most sacrificial, and consequently, 
you'll be competing to see who has the most power of God showing up in their lives. I know what it's like to be a part of a culture and a group that is that way. And it will make you better than you were yesterday. And better than you will be tomorrow, you'll be the day after that. It's edifying. Amen? Amen. Now stand to your feet. I'm going to read to you 2 Corinthians 5. It's going to be 21 through the 6th verse. And that will be our closing. Can you imagine standing for the entire reading of the book of the law? Some of you are writing it or have written it. It's a long book. They stood the entire day. Men, women, children, elderly, young people. I thought about that in a meeting the other day where a man who had fallen asleep was made to stand for 40 minutes. I felt sorry for him after 10. Israel stood for the entire reading of the book of the law. They were used to forcing their flesh to do what their spirit said was right. How used to that are we? Here comes 521. 520. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You cannot reconcile anything without taking into account the debits. Reconciling is not looking at deposits only. It is also looking at debits, clearly, honestly, assessing them. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him, who had no sin, to be sin, for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For He says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and the day of salvation I help you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of God's salvation. Saints, as we close when we pray, you commit in your heart to do whatever God has told you to do and you make it public. Tell everyone. Make yourself be held accountable to it. Holy Father, Lord, we lift up our lives before You. Our goal is not that we would be beat down. Lord, we see a remedy for our snake bites. And it's You. Lord, as we look into the ugliness that is within us, we reconcile it with the goodness that is in You. Lord, we're convinced. We're convinced that you are putting us in right standing with God. That you've credited it to us now. And that it's our job to walk in it daily. Holy One, we're asking you, what are those events that you've planned in advance for us to do? What are those good works that your word mentions that we're supposed to do? Holy One, we want to be your hands and feet. Our hearts desire is that we would be pleasing to you, not just yesterday and today, but tomorrow as well. Move in us, Lord. We're your children. We love you and we call upon your name. The whole church says the name of Jesus. Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Y'all go eat, be blessed. Do not forget about the uh, power money box.